All right, Baruch Hashem Yahuwah, Baruch Hashem Yahuwah, round two, number two of the Sukkot teaching. Um, we left off a little bit yesterday talking about King Edward I, and we were talking about the statutory law merchant, and um, I'll just recap that, and then we'll get into binding and loosing. A often quoted, but rarely understood passage in scripture, which I have had used uh, incorrectly so many times in my life. And I thought, well, that would be very important specifically regarding the subject matter that we're talking about today. So we were talking about Edward I and Edward I's reign and how that saw the development of the Statute of Action Burnell in 1283, which was considered an early precursor, I said yesterday, to the Statute Law Merchant, which was directly related to the moneylenders, the moneylenders. And it was part of Edward I's efforts to establish some kind of legal framework for trade and commerce. Because you will notice today in the society we live in, Mystery Babylon, I do believe, it's all about trade and commerce. That's all it's about. It's about trade and commerce. Any charge, any lien, anything that comes your way, is trade and commerce. All crimes are commercial in nature. Criminal cr criminal charges, well, they're commercial in nature. Well, no, they're not. Well, then why do they have bonds associated with them? Is that not commerce? All crimes are commercial in nature. Okay? So therefore, there is a commercial remedy for all crimes. All charges are commercial in nature. Because it's within this statute law merchant that the frameworks of trade and commerce were established. All of your state statutes, like I said yesterday, when you get a charge, where do you think they came from? The statutory law merchants. That's where they came from. So this is the root, the crux of the matter, which ties back to trading and trafficking in the souls of human beings. I thought we were free. I thought it was we the people. Well, no, it's not. It's we the slaves because we volunteered for it. We've all volunteered for it. So Edward I made a decision to expel the money changers from England, and that marked the end of a significant synagogue of Satan presence in England until they were officially readmitted in the 17th century. Edward I's reign was marked by various legal and financial developments. And his interaction with those that had come out of Babylon played a significant role in shaping certain aspects of medieval English law and finance. And all of the laws that we have on the books over here in the United States, their origin is in English law. 
those of you that are familiar, you there's Black's um, Law Dictionary or um, Blackstone's, William Blackstone, an Englishman, and many of the laws come from that. In the book of Daniel, in the 12th chapter, it is written, and at that time, Michiel, Michael, will stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble. I suggest to you that that is the precursor for the millennium, Jacob's trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even at that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. Whether it's the Vatican, the synagogue of Satan, Edward I, commerce, our present situation within the Western world, which is commercial in nature, there's a direct connection to a conflict with the papacy. Edward I had a conflict with the papacy because he had had disputes with the papacy during his reign. And one of the most notable conflicts was the Constitution of Clarendon in 1164 during the reign of Henry II which had led to great tensions between the English crown and the church, the papacy. What was the problem? As always, taxation disputes. It's always the taxes, taxation disputes. Edward I faced financial challenges during his rule including the need to fund military campaigns. What are we doing right now? What are, it nothing I mean it's all commerce. They're not making this stuff up. They know the playbook, they know it works and it's a different country, it's a different war, it's a different dispute, but it's the same old thing. We need to fund the military campaigns. And at times he imposed heavy taxes on the clergy and sought papal approval for these particular levies. So relations with Pope Boniface VIII, Edward I's reign coincided with the pontificate of Pope Boniface VIII. And they had various disagreements, but it was particularly over the issues of taxation and the authority of the king versus the pope. It's very important that I lay this foundation for you because we're gonna tie this in with King Charles. We're gonna tie this in with where we're at today, but I need to establish to you that the monarchy of Great Britain is under the thumb. They are absolutely owned by the Vatican. And it's nothing new, it goes all the way back to this, okay? That's the beast system is the Vatican. It's a governmental structure. Whereas the whore who rides the beast is the financial structure, which is the synagogue of Satan. And we are going to see in our day who devours who. That's a question. 
The beast devours the whore. So what do you think that would look like? Huh? A financial collapse. Instituted by a governmental power. Why? Because they want it all for themselves. Central bank digital currencies. Possibly, probably. That looks like that's what's on the horizon. Anyway, I digress. The Jesuit order, officially known as the Society of Jesus. Oh, my goodness. He said the word Jesus. You, no, it really is the, um, the uh, Society of Jesus. Okay. So I'm allowed to say it. Was founded in the 16th century, well after Edward I's time. Because the Jesuits emerged as a military missionary response to what? Anybody? A military missionary response to what? The Reformation. It was the military arm to squash the Reformation. That's why they were developed, to crush the Reformation in a military-style counterinsurgency. In 1290, King Edward I issued the Edict of Expulsion, which banished Jews from England. And this was largely driven by indebtedness to the synagogue of Satan, as Edward I sought to cancel debts owed to the moneylenders. That's what he wanted to do, try and cancel the debts. Does this all sound familiar where we're at today in society? And the, the Jews of that time were not formally readmitted into England until the mid-17th century during the rule of Oliver Cromwell. And this was following a severe period of political turmoil and there was civil war in England. Why do you think that they are stirring up this political divide, which is so militant right now? It's absolutely people hating on, on other people, right? Because it worked in England, and they know it will work again. It worked in the 19th century, and they know it will work again. This is a playbook. This is a monopoly playbook on how to win the game. And unless we stop being silly pawns in the game and come out of her, my people, we are going to get caught up in the worst trouble since 70 of the common era. The moneylenders played a significant role in medieval Europe, including England, where they provided loans to both monarchs and nobility. Monarchs relied on the moneylenders to fund their activities, including military campaigns, Ukraine, and state expenses. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? I love history. I love it because you're like, oh my goodness, this is a playbook. There is nothing new under the sun, as Melech Shlomo said, King Solomon said. It's an absolute playbook. And their reliance led to severe tensions and disputes. Of course, Yahushua warned us in Matthew 24, and ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. 
For all these things, they must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences, earthquakes in diverse places. These are the beginning of the troubles. These are the beginning of Jacob's troubles. There is a strong papal influence, always has been. The papacy, represented by the Vatican, had considerable influence in medieval Europe. If you read the conservative, orthodox reformers, they were utterly convinced in their writing that the Antichrist was seated as the Pope the black pope or the white pope, but these are orthodox Christian writers back at the time of the Reformation. But nowadays, there's this universalism within the Christian movement, even with non-Christians, excuse me, even with so-called Protestants, they're not really protesting much at all, are they? Because they're pretty much practicing Catholicism. And that's very offensive, but that's the truth. How are you really protesting Catholicism? You're still doing their Sabbath. You're still doing their feasts. What exactly are you protesting? Not much at all. That's because the Jesuits did their job extremely successfully. Infiltration infiltration into the American Bible Society, infiltration into the New International Version, the message, and all of these Bibles that are coming out, infiltrated by the Jesuits. There isn't much protesting going on whatsoever. It's Catholic. It's the papacy. The Society of Jesus, founded in 1540 by Ignatius of Loyola. Their mission was to combat the spread of Protestantism and promote Catholicism. And you see that now. The expulsion of the Jews from England by Edward I and their eventual readmission during Cromwell, Cromwell's rule were influenced by a combination of financial, political, and religious factors. And these events, these events occurred in a complex web of interactions between the monarchs, religious institutions, and economic systems that directly tie in to the three vertices that I spoke about yesterday of the city of London, Washington DC, and the Vatican, because it's a monetary system, a legal system, and a war system, political in essence. And the eventual devouring of the whore, the beast of revelation, leading up to Jacob's trouble. So, 
the development then of the law merchant, also known as Lex Mercatoria, spoke about that yesterday, is a fascinating journey, if you track it, that spans thousands, thousands of years and has had a significant influence on our modern commercial laws. In America, we call it the UCC, the Uniform Commercial Code, because we're not dealing with money, are we? We're dealing with negotiable instruments, debt instruments. And where would you find all of the applicable laws there that all of the states have signed on to? The Uniform Commercial Code. What about the federal rules of civil procedure? When were they invented? Right after the bankruptcy. Yes. And again, commercial in nature. Then you've got, of course, your state rules of civil procedure. Several decades again after the bankruptcy, because we're dealing with commerce. We're dealing with negotiable instruments. So I must give you a clear and concise admonishment as believers on the powers and limits of those powers that have been entrusted to the courts, to the enforcement agencies, and to you today. Because many people get afraid, and there's a lot of fear-mongering going on, isn't there? A lot of fear-mongering. But you must understand that the kingdoms of men, they are limited. They are limited. You and I are bound to act in a certain way. When I say we are bound, I mean as in a binding. We are bound to act in a certain way in court. And if we do, we will receive the dishonor to judgment. We're forbidden, bound, to act a certain way. If we act that way, we will receive the judgment. Didn't Yahushua say that? Didn't he say that we should try and talk to our adversaries before we go, right, along the way? You and I are loosed. We are loosed, permitted to act a certain way in court. And if we do, we will receive the blessing and honor. Those in dishonor will not be able to understand it or comprehend it or cognize it. But it's always been that way. Likewise, brethren, the courts are bound to act in a certain way and the courts are loosed in a certain way because there is a cap. They cannot go against natural law. They cannot go against Yahuwah's law as it is written in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. It's a verse in which Yahushua speaks to Shimon Kiefer. I will give you the keys to the Malchut HaShamayim. I will give you the keys. You're going to be able to unlock things that have remained locked. You're going to be able to enter into a portal that other people will never experience. You're going to be able to access a room full of information 
that nobody else is ever going to be able to experience. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. How many of you have ever heard that scripture? How many of us really understand it? It kind of gets a bit confusing, binding loose, and I bind this, loose this, what about, 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 I mean, right? But what, break it down, because I've heard it's said in all kinds of ways that make no sense to me whatsoever. It's just like thrown around. But this is extremely, extremely explicit. What do keys represent? What do you think? Huh? Door. Anybody? Freedom. Shout it out. Come on. This is knowledge. Excellent. Authority and access. Simply, right? Authority. Keys represent authority and access. And in this context, it signifies the authority to interpret and apply Yahweh's teachings. Do you have the authority to interpret and apply Yahweh's teachings? Does the heathen, those that hate Yahusha, do they have the authority to apply and interpret Yahusha's teachings? No. You have that authority. But you have to believe it. So when the heathen accosts you, do you believe that you have the authority and the access? Because if you don't, then you will fall and you will be taken captive. But if you do believe it and you act upon it, then a whole realm will open up to you that the heathen will not be able to cognize. They won't even understand what's going on right before them. And their boil, their, 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 their ball of turmoil that they're trying to ensnare you in, it will just unravel before, and they won't even understand why. It's always been that way. Binding. What does binding mean? Huh? Restrain anybody else. What does it mean in the context of the scripture? I bind that. What does that mean? What do we got? We got restrict, block. Huh? That's what I'm looking for. Prohibit, forbid. It's forbidding. So then, what does loosing mean? Debbie in the back. To permit, right? So we're talking about forbidding and permitting. That's it. Let's get rid of all the mysticism, all the weird interpretations of I bind this, I loose this. It's simply to forbid and to permit. Binding means it's forbidding. Loosing means it's permitting. These are natural laws the kings and the rulers of the earth 
they are bound and loosed by these very principles. And they cannot rule against them. Because is man's law higher than Yah's law? Heaven forbid. They know it. They are a cult. And they have to acknowledge that. It's a spiritual law. It's a natural law. So if you align yourself with Yahuwah, and you align yourself with for, um, binding and loosing in your life, are you going to be successful? And are you going to have access and authority like no other? Yes. But we have to align ourselves. We have to correct ourselves. And we have all gone astray. Yes. So the question sister was asking, I bind that spirit of fear. Okay, and we'll get into that. Because you have to be able to remember what this is about, is authority and access. And what's the authority based upon? Man or Yahuwah's word. So obviously, we have got to align the binding and loosing with what? Yah's word. Right? That's a very key point, because in Christianity, they throw this around like some primordial soup. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. Can you loose the eating of pork? Can you permit it? Can you? Can you loose the eating of pork? I'm asking you. Why? Because it's already been bound in Leviticus 11. And only a fool, a simpleton, would try and go against the word of Yahweh. So just based upon Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, the majority of Christian, Christian theology turns out to be folly. Because they're actually binding and loosing, and they don't understand what they're doing. You cannot loose something that is bound, and you cannot bind something that is loosed. We cannot go against the Creator, Yahuwah. He's the one that binds and looses, and we must align ourselves with His Word, and that's where we get the access and the authority. We have been misguided by the church. And I'm not to throw the church under the bus, but I kind of am, aren't I? The terms bind and loose are idiomatic expressions rooted in Jewish legal and rabbinical traditions. These expressions were commonly used to refer to making legal determinations or decisions. So in the context of Yahushua, when a rabbi bound something, it meant that he declared it forbidden. Does that make sense? And when a rabbi loosed something, he declared it permissible. So these decisions were based upon the interpretation of Jewish law, the Torah, which is why Yahushua had such an issue with the Pharisees, a ditch, 
just as he would have an issue with traditional Christianity, another ditch, because the Pharisees were binding things that were loosed, and they were loosing things that were bound by Scripture. Likewise, the other ditch, Christianity, is loosing things that are bound, eating pork, and binding things that are loosed, keeping Sabbath on the seventh day. Or you don't do, we don't do that anymore. They're binding something that has already been loosed. It's permitted for man to keep the Sabbath, but they're binding it. Or oh, we don't keep the Sabbath on the seventh day. It's on the first day now. Papal bull. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Traditional Christianity loves to sling around Matthew 16, verse 19, binding and loosing demons here, left, right, and center. Um, a misapplication of the verse. Hyper-spiritualization of the text, which will end up getting you in a lot of trouble, especially in the context of what we're talking about, because the courts of men, the, the kings of the earth, the rulers of the earth, they recognize and obey the binding and loosing of the scripture. They do. The courts of men honor the binding and loosing of scripture. And if we don't understand then how to align ourselves with that, do you think it could be our very undoing? Do you think we could maybe end up being bound in chains? Do you think we could possibly be imprisoned and placed under irons? Why? Because we don't understand this simple law. So this is the authority of the saints. It's about the responsibility of interpreting and applying Yahuwah's laws to everyday life. That's what we're here for. It's not about arbitrary decisions, but about applying religious principles faithfully. So think about heavenly confirmation. The phrase will be bound in heaven. What does that mean? And will be loosed in heaven. That doesn't mean that heaven merely confirms human decisions. And this is the misapplication in the Christian church. Well, I bind this and I lose this. No, heaven isn't going to confirm earthly decisions. That's a misapplication. Well, there's some human being made this decision and they said, I bind this, I lose that. And now heaven has to confirm it. No, you've got it all upside down, topsy-turvy and backwards. And that's the problem with the Catholic Church and those that were supposed to be protesting it, but didn't. Not very much. It was a pretty lukewarm effort that died out within a hundred years because there was a military wing of the papacy that was deployed to infiltrate the Reformation and they succeeded extremely, extremely well. Instead, it implies that religious decisions made on earth should align with Yahweh's will and his revealed word, right? Right? In other words, religious authorities should make decisions 
that reflect Yahweh's intent as found in Scripture. See how easy it is when we follow Yahweh's blueprint for life? So let's dispel a few misconceptions because I have been um, subject to many of this, these misconceptions over the years. Now, while some Christian interpretations emphasize the idea that whatever is bound or loosed on earth is automatically validated in heaven. Have you ever heard that before, that interpretation? This extremely Pentecostal interpretation. Well, whatever, whatever is bound or loosed on earth is automatically validated in heaven. But that's simply not true. Simply not true. And it's important to understand this verse within the Hebrew context in which it was framed. It's not about absolute authority, but about responsible interpretation and application of Yahweh's teachings. So the binding and loosing authority was not given exclusively to Shimon Kiefer, to Peter. It wasn't. But it was extended to the broader community of believers. You, the disciples, you and later, generations and generations of which we are those people. Binding, the, the, the Greek word is deo, deo, and it implies a restriction or obligation. And when used in, like, say, um, a rabbinic legal context, it signifies declaring something as forbidden. It's obligatory based upon the interpretation of religious law, which should be based upon the Torah. But the problem with the Pharisees is that it wasn't. It was based upon what? Babylonian magic. In Greek, dio can mean to bind or to tie. So it carries the theme of what? Securing something making something obligatory. Whereas loosing in the Greek is laio, and it suggests obviously the opposite of binding, meaning to release, to permit. In the legal context, rabbinical legal context, it would signify declaring something as permissible or as released based upon an interpretation of religious law that should be grounded in religious text, which is why we have this issue in Matthew 16, because they had gone into the ditch of Phariseeism and they were applying the binding and loosing principles based upon the Talmud and the Mishnah, not upon the religious text. And here we are thousands of years later, Binding and loosing things based upon Reformation theology or Catholic theology. And we wonder why we're confused and we wonder why you go into court and you end up in chains. Right? So here's the interpretation. Because I'm long-winded. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you declare as forbidden or obligatory on earth will be bound, 
secured or made obligatory in heaven. And whatever you declare as permissible or released on earth will be loosed, untied, or permitted in heaven. It's about the authority. You don't realize the authority that you have in Yahusha. We have this authority to interpret and apply religious law that is above all of man's law. So if we stick in Yahweh's religious law, do we have anything to fear from man's law? We don't. If we come outside of Yahweh's law, do we have something to fear with man's law? Yes. So get in the house of Yahuwah and you're going to be just fine. Hallelujah. All the fear, all the fear mongering is gone away. Get in the house of Yahuwah and the laws of man will be subservient to the laws of Yahuwah. Always. They have to be. They, wait, they will not be able to cognize what's happening oftentimes, but they'll still be bound and loosed by what is happening. Their plans will unravel before their eyes or come to no fruition, and they will wonder why, and they will not understand because they have not been given the access to understand. Because you have the keys. I have the keys. But the keys are in the hand of Yahusha. And he only gives it to those that can steward the gift. It's about the authority to interpret and apply religious laws. With the understanding that these interpretations should should align with divine principles and Yahuwah's will as revealed in heaven. Rather than suggesting I direct autonomous power to alter heavenly decisions. We don't have some autonomous power to alter Leviticus 11 or any other scripture. So what does it emphasize? To me, it emphasizes my responsibility. It emphasizes your responsibility as believers to make decisions grounding in our, grounded, excuse me, in our understanding of Yahweh's divine intent. What's Yahweh's divine intent here? To do what is right. To do what is honorable, the right dealings between man and man. Is that what it's not about? The right dealings between man and his creator. This is what the ten mitzvot are. Five horizontal and five vertical. And if we do that, we have nothing to fear in Jacob's trouble. It would be the fool, the absolute blundering idiot who says he has the autonomous power to alter the heavenly decisions of Torah and to loose a bound law, right? 
And is that what the Catholic Church, the Vatican, and the Reformation religious traditions have done? Have, is it? Right? For example, it would be foolish to say a binding prohibition on eating pork is loose and permissible in Jesus. Because that interpretation, listen, listen, that interpretation sets Yahusha at war against heaven and places Yahusha in the role of Satan. Is that what they've done? They have set Yahusha at war against heaven and actually placed him in the role of Satan. Do you see that? This isn't rocket science. I'm just breaking it down very succinctly with a few verses. And getting rid of all of the mysticism. And you wonder why there are all of these traditions that, you know, well, Satan is Jesus' brother. Heaven forbid. That's because you've put him in that position. You are worshipping a different God. A different God. Because you're going against the very word of Yahweh. They have set Yahushua at war against heaven and placed Yahushua in the role of Satan. Heaven forbid. Do you see the folly in such theology now? You see the folly, right? It's so, so clear to see. But you and I didn't always see it. We didn't always see it. It's a fool's interpretation that does not align with divine principle and doesn't align with Yahweh's will as revealed in the scripture. No one has the authority to contradict or permit actions that are clearly prohibited in the Bible. We shouldn't care if they're Jesuits. We shouldn't care if they're pastors. And we shouldn't care if they're popes. And we certainly shouldn't care if they're lawyers. Because you know what Yahushua said about the lawyers, don't you? Matthew chapter 16 verse 19 reflects the Hebrew roots of the early believers. It's powerful because it highlights the authority that you have, brethren. You have the authority. Over the laws of man, that doesn't mean we don't obey the laws of man. But if they are in contradiction to the laws of Yahuwah, we must stand. And then we stand and then we still stand and you will be delivered. I assure you, I assure you, just like Shimon Kiefer we are to interpret and apply Yahweh's teachings in accordance with Torah legal principles. It's not about arbitrary decision making, but about aligning human decisions with Yahweh's will as revealed in his living word. That changes your DNA. When we read his word, it changes our DNA. We start looking different. Younger and more beautiful. Right? We receive that. This verse then demonstrates the importance of response. Here's the thing. 
the importance of responsible interpretation and application of religious teachings in both Jewish and Christian contexts. And all courts today are bound and loosed by this spiritual law. What did you say? Maxim. It's a spiritual maxim. Thank you. From a man who knows, like I know, because we've been through the system and come out victorious. Praise Yah's holy name. I know I camped on that for a long time, but um, thank you, Donnie, for helping me to get there too. Um, yeah. This is, was, is a powerful, powerful meditation, if you really, really hear what I'm saying. We will be back a little later. Um, we're going to have, we're going, what are we doing now? We're going for dinner? We're going for dinner. And then we'll be back on our schedule, 11 in the morning, it's Shabbat. And then we've got the three o'clock teaching again too. So keep tuned, those of you, thanks for joining us online and um, we love you, Yah bless you, and enjoy the feast. It is the Feast of Tabernacles, and we're live here at Sioux Coast at the Coast. Shalom.